Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey, this is J.J. Burden, former NFL wide receiver for the Kansas City Chiefs, and you're listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. Welcome to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ken Crippen, and I'm the founder and lead instructor at the FLA. In this episode, we talk to author and historian Greg Tranter about his books and his collection of Buffalo Bills memorabilia. Greg's collection is the largest collection of Buffalo Bills memorabilia in the world and contains over 100,000 items. He has authored five books, including his most recent co-authored with Bud Bailey, titled Buffalo Bills, an Illustrated Timeline of a Storied Team. A little background on Greg. He's a prominent sports historian, curator, and author with a specialized expertise in Buffalo Bills history. He has authored five books on Buffalo sports history, including Makers, Moments, and Memorabilia, A Chronicle of Buffalo Professional Sports, Relics, The History of the Buffalo Bills and Objects and Memorabilia, the Buffalo Sports Curse, 120 Years of Pain, Disappointment, Heartbreak, and Eternal Optimism, Buffalo Bills, an Illustrated Timeline of a Storied Team, and Buffalo Braves from A to Z. Greg has curated multiple sports exhibits, including icons, the makers and moments of Buffalo sports at the Buffalo History Museum. He also authored and acts as the tour guide for the Buffalo Sports Heritage Tour with Explore Buffalo. In addition, he writes for several magazines, including Gridiron Greats, NYPA Collector, and Western New York Heritage. Greg is the Assistant Executive Director of the Professional Football Researchers Association and the Managing Editor of the Coffin Corner. In 2018, Greg received the PFRA's Bob Carroll Memorial Writing Award, and in 2022, it's Nelson Ross Award. For the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, we will discuss the Providence Steamroller, one of the early NFL teams and the subject of Greg's next book. Now let's get to our interview with Greg Tranter. Greg, welcome to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. How are you doing today? Hey, Ken, great. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. So you and I are both longtime Bills fans. Now, are you originally from the area? Um, well, I'm actually from the Elmira Corning area, which is about, what, two and a half hours kind of southeast of Buffalo. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, I mean, it's not too far from there. No, and I grew up a Bills fan because they were the closest team. They were the team on television. My dad took us to a few games. And so, um, and of course, the re actually one of the reasons I chose them is I loved their standing Buffalo helmet from the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're eight years old, that's what you pick teams based on. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was going to ask you how long you've been following the team, but then you said standing Buffalo. So that pretty much told me. <laughs> yeah. 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 Really since uh, about the mid sixties, cause I was eight in 65 and that's really when I started paying attention to them, bought my first pack of football cards, 
um, you know, went to my first game, you know, all that type of stuff all kind of happened, you know, when I was eight, nine years old. Yeah. So you said, uh, the cards. So that started your collection of Buffalo Bills memorabilia. Um, it sure did. 1965 tops, the tall boys. Yeah. That was the first set I collected. And of course the bills players have the pink backgrounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, that got me going. Yeah. So that grew into, uh, the largest collection of Buffalo Bills memorabilia in the world. How many uh, items did you eventually get into that collection? I'm guessing you're still collecting more. Yes. Um, yeah, it's about 108,000 artifacts, which is really divided into kind of two groups. There's about 8,000 three-dimensional objects, which include, you know, jerseys, helmets, but also, you know, mugs and glasses and bobblehead dolls and all kinds of stuff. And then there's about 100,000 uh, pieces of you know like paper objects football cards programs ticket stubs newspaper articles you know all kinds of like bills brochures to you know buy tickets or buy memorabilia or whatever it happens to be mm-hmm. what's the most unique item that you have in that collection um probably the most unique is i have two lapel pins that are Buffalo standing Buffalo helmets that Jack Kemp's secret service agents wore when he was the 1996 vice presidential candidate with uh, Bob Dole as the presidential candidate. And so when um, the secret service guarded him, they wore these lapel pins. Hmm. Now what's your favorite item in the collection? Well, really the favorite is um, up until the last couple of years, I have every program from every Bills game ever played. Um, And to me, that's the history of the team. Now, of course, in the last few years, teams have gone away. Many of the teams have gone away from actually printing programs. Um, And so that that part of the collection, along with ticket stubs, is going to kind of die a (laughs) digital death here. I imagine you're still going to keep those in the, in your collection, you know, even though it is digital. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. To some, to the degree that you can. Yes. Um, I still try to collect each game, you know, and the significance of each, each game and anything that they give away or, you know, have not now though, it's mostly down to newspaper articles (laughs) (laughs) Um, pretty much. Mm. What are some of the other highlights that you have in that collection? Um, probably the two most significant from, well, three most significant from like a value perspective is the Bills wore blue and silver jerseys their first two seasons. Um, cause, uh, Ralph Wilson had come over from the lions. He was a part owner of the lions. And so he brought the blue and silver. Uh, so I have a game worn Jersey of art Baker, a blue and silver Jersey, um, and the significance of Art Baker, he actually played at Syracuse University. He was the fullback that played with Ernie Davis mm-hmm. when Davis won the Heisman Trophy and when Syracuse won their only national championship. Um, and then he played a couple of years uh, with the Bills in the early 60s before he played three or four years in the CFL. Uh, but that jersey is very you know, significant because of the rarity uh, of it. And there's almost no jerseys from those couple of seasons. They only wore blue and silver in 60 and 61. Um, pretty close to the uh, types of jerseys they're wearing in the All-America Football Conference too, the the silver and the blue. Yes, yes. 
and they're like a Doreen and, you know, they're the old style sewn on letters and they have buttons down at the base to hold the pants up and everything there. It's a very cool um, Jersey. Uh, then the other, the other two things I have a Jersey um, from the year OJ Simpson rush for 2000 yards. Uh, it was the game against the Colts. The, I think it was the fifth game of the season. Um, you know, it wasn't the record-breaking jersey, but it was worn in, in the season that he rushed for 2,000 yards. And he's still the only running back in NFL history to get 2,000 yards in 14, you know, in only 14 games. Um, and then the third is, uh, which I would argue is probably the most significant piece of memorabilia in Super Bowl history, is Scott Norwood's helmet that he wore in Super Bowl 25. And it is still the only Super Bowl that's been won or lost on a single play. Uh, because on the other field goals that won Super Bowls, the games were tied. And so if Vinatieri missed his field goal, if Jim O'Brien missed his field goal, the game went to overtime. It wasn't a it wasn't a loss. Mm-hmm. Now you donated the uh entire collection to the Buffalo History Museum. Why did you do that? I did. Um, really how it came about in 2008, I approached the History Museum and said, hey, the Bill's 50th anniversary is 2009. You guys should do an exhibit honoring the 50th anniversary. And oh, by the way, I can provide all the artifacts. So I worked with the museum. They did a, a an exhibit. It was the second highest attended exhibit in the 150 year history of the history museum. (laughs) Um, But what struck me was during the exhibit, I would, I would be a docent on the weekends and tour people through the exhibit and talk about the different artifacts. And what struck me is every person that came through and got a tour had some personal story to tell about some artifact that was on display, whether it was a game that they went with their father or their mother or their grandfather, or they had some story or, you know, hey, I had that when I was a kid or whatever it was. And it just really struck me. And it was like, this doesn't belong in my basement in Massachusetts. <laughs> it belongs in Buffalo for all the Bills Mafia to, uh, to enjoy. Um, and so I started what turned out to be about a six year process uh, before I donated the collection, because I actually um, went back to school um, and got a master's in museum administration to understand the museum industry and know what I was getting myself into by donating the collection. Um, and it was shortly after that, after I graduated in 2015, and I donated the collection that year. Mm-hmm. So are you still in the process of sending stuff over, or is it fully transferred. Yes, um, because what I learned in museum school is it's really important to document every artifact. Um, like, why does it matter? What's it made of? You know, all those types of things. And so I know what the museum needs to document the artifacts. So I told them I would basically do all that documenting. Um, and so they have all the three-dimensional objects, except about 10 that I kept for my bookcase <laughs> behind my desk. Um, and then they have most of the paper objects. The only significant thing they don't have yet is the programs and the tickets, because I'm just beginning to go through and start donating all of those. And, and I, we've agreed I'll donate those as I do. I'll do each year and then donate them and do another year and donate them so that they get you know the whole sequence of a season. 
Okay. Now you work for the Buffalo History Museum. What's your role and responsibilities there right now? Yeah. So I did. I don't. I I I concluded my um, my tenure in May. Um, so the for the last five years, I was actually the uh, president of the board of managers of the museum. So I basically led the museum, and the executive director, of course, is the highest level staff person that reports into the. Um, you know, into the board. And so I worked with Melissa Brown, who is the executive director. I worked with her very closely. But I had an interesting relationship because I was not only president of the board, but I also curated exhibits because I'm a museum professional, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is not the norm of a, you know, of a member of the board of a, of a museum. Um, and so it was really kind of interesting because I would tell the staff, hey, when I'm curating an exhibit. I'm one of you. I'm just another staff member. I'm not the president of the board. Um, you know, so it was kind of an interesting process, but, you know, I, I've curated since I, I worked with the museum for about 10 years and we curated a major exhibit, um, back in 2017, we just recently updated it this year. And then we also had rotating exhibits that we would do basically once a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was involved in led most all of those. Did they have a lot of Bill's items at the museum prior to your collection? No, almost, almost none. <laughs> um, and they didn't have, they, they had a very limited sports collection um, in total. Um, oh. And now, of course, they have the largest collection in the world. And it's brought other people to donate other items. Um, to the to the Bills collection or, you know, to the History Museum, um, which has been great, too, because believe it or not, with 108,000 artifacts, you would think there's not other things out there, but there are. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so, yeah, so, no, it's been great. It's been great. So, based off of that, I'm guessing they had absolutely nothing from the early NFL teams in Buffalo in the All-America Football Conference? Yeah, almost nothing. They might have had, you know, I think they might have had one or two AAFC programs. I think before I donated the Bills collection, I think they had a couple media guides, you know, but very, very sporadic. And not nothing from the All-Americans or the 1920s mm-hmm. team or the 1940-41, you know, AFL team. And now they, they still don't have anything on the All-Americans. They do have some things on the um, you know, the Buffalo team from 40 and 41 that actually were part of my collection. Mm-hmm. So you're also on the board of directors for the Professional Football Researchers Association. What are you doing and in what capacity with the PFRA? So I'm the, um, I'm the, my official title is I'm the assistant executive director. Plus I'm also the managing editor of the Coffin Corner. Um, and so pretty much my responsibilities are twofold. I run, I lead the biography project for the PFRA. So since the pandemic, since 2020, we kicked off in 2020, we kicked off a biography project similar to what Sabre has, where they've done only, they've done thousands of of biographies on baseball players. We decided to start trying to do that on football players. Um, And, you know, in what, three years, we have 600 and 31 at last count of biographies that are now posted to the website. Um, And so what that means is anybody who's interested in doing a biography of, you know, any player, coach, referee, 
um, they just contact me and I only really request they contact me. So we're not duplicating because, you know, I know, I know all the ones that are being worked on by other people that aren't necessarily posted yet. Um, and then I just give them the go ahead once, you know, I know who they want to work on. Um, and then I work with them, they draft it, you know, I edit it, um, and work with them on that. And then once that's complete, I pass it on to Lee Elder, who's the executive director. He re he reads each each one of them, and then we and then we post them after that. Um, so it's a it's a, actually a relatively simple and quick process. Um, so I do that, and then the second thing is with the coffin corner. I'm kind of the lead person on all the coffin corner articles now. So again, if you want to write an article for the coffin corner. You submit it to me. You either submit your idea, or some people just write one and send it in. <laughs> um, and then again, I work with them on the initial editing, guiding them, fact checking, you know, that type of stuff. And then we have a couple other people in the process that also participate in editing. Um, but I don't get involved. Mark Mark Dewar does like the layout um, and all that. So. But I but I prepare basically position all the articles to be ready for him to utilize. All right. So you wrote a book with uh, Jeff Miller and the photographs were done by Mark Pelcheski called Relics, basically talking about all the items or at least a selection of the items in your collection and the stories behind them. Why do you want to write that book? Well, what I what I wanted to do was bring the collection to life. Um, and what I learned in museum school was the objects are cool, but the most important part of the object is the story behind it. Um, and so what we did, what Jeff and I did is we basically picked 75 objects from the collection and told the story of each of the objects, but also told the history of the bills through the eyes of the objects. So we take objects basically starting in 1959 with you know, Ralph Wilson buying the team all the way up to uh, it was 2019 when the book was published. Um, and so we have artifacts throughout and they're not like all jerseys or all helmets. What the, the advice that we had gotten from the publisher was make sure you mix and match and have all kinds of different objects. Um, and so, of course, we do. We, you know, we have programs, we have bobbleheads, we have um, we have a letter, uh, a, like a handwritten notes that Ernie Warlick wrote on Hotel Roosevelt letterhead before he met the press about the boycott of the AFL All-Star game. Um, you know, of course, we have Norwood's helmet in there, um, but all kinds of, you know, kind of different types of artifacts that that tell the history of the team. How do you go about doing the monumental task of paring down over a hundred thousand items to 75? <laughs> well, we kind of cheated because it's actually, there's actually more than 75 because like, for example, we did AFL programs. Well, we picked like 12, <laughs> but it's really one. Um, <laughs> so we cheated a little bit. So there's about 150 photo photographed, objects that are in the stories um but we we basically you know i think the initial draft list we had like 300 and then we cut it to 200 and then we cut it to 100 
Um, and then we we actually wrote stories on almost a hundred. Um, and then of course the you know the publisher helped us with, um, you know you don't really need two from the same season, so pick one, you know that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, but it was it was very difficult. I mean, in fact, Jeff and I at one point had talked about you know doing a second edition. Um, you know, where we take another group of 75 and tell some, some additional and different stories. Hmm. I mean, that would definitely be interesting. So you can learn more about not only the collection, but the history of the team. So, yeah. Um, and the other thing we do with is we tell about the history of the object. So for example, like with the bobbleheads, we talk about, you know, bobbleheads came from China in 1959. And so we talk about how that happened and why that was important and then what bobbleheads were like in 1960 versus like how they are today. Um, you know, because th there was a real lull. They were very popular in the 60s, less so in the 70s, and were almost completely gone in the 80s. And then they have this big resurgence in the last, you know, 20 years, which has been kind of interesting. Any disagreements between you and Jeff where there were some that you really really wanted to make sure you got in the book um yeah yeah there were a few um i wanted to do a woman's story on jewelry <laughs> um and kind of tie in you know women's place in in professional football and he thought that was a little too um controversial <laughs> and we might get into some controversy there so it was like okay we, we didn't do that mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, there were a few of those, but, but, you know, he, what was interesting is he came at the collection differently than I did, of course. And there were certain objects that like would not have been on my list that were really important to him. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was like, sure, you know, well, yeah, we need to include some of the ones that, you know, like, you know, that he had childhood memories of. Um, so there's some very specific ones that are, you know, he was very, you know, focused on. And then there were some others that we included that have great stories behind them. Um, you know, like from Super Bowl 25, we have this test tube um, because um, a group of us went out the night before the Super Bowl and they were selling shots of whatever you wanted in these Bills and Giants test tubes. And you had to chug them in front of the whole restaurant and they were cheering and stuff. <laughs> so it's like, well, we have to include those mm -hmm. <laughs> to go with the Norwood helmet, of course. <laughs> of course. Um, so there's some interesting stories like that, that we all like personal stories of like how I obtained a particular object or like a funny story behind one of the objects. Mm -hmm. um, so we tell a few of those too. I'm going to take a quick break, then continue with our interview with Greg Tranter. If you like what you're hearing, consider pressing that donate button in the podcast player. That money goes to continuing to provide quality content as well as help retired players in need. If you're enjoying this interview, make sure you visit the FLA website at www.football-learning-academy.com. There you'll find more archival interviews such as Don Shula, Mercury Morris, Ken Riley, and Maxie Bond. We also have a variety of other interviews, such as Amy Trask, the first female CEO of an NFL franchise. We have broadcasting and sports writing legend Leslie Visser teaching a mini masterclass on interviewing. 
Nolan Harrison, a former player and current senior director at the NFL Players Association. Shannon Easton, the first female on-field official in NFL history, and many more. To get access to these interviews, classes on the history of the game, a blog, and much more, go to www.football-learning-academy.com. We're back to our interview with Greg Tranter. The next book he wrote was on the Buffalo Sports Curse. So let's start off with when did the curse start, in your opinion? So it actually started in 1901. Three things occurred in Buffalo in 1901. Um, One, President McKinley was assassinated at the Pan American Exposition um, and died. You know, he was shot at the Pan Am and died, you know, like eight days later. Um, but the, the part that most Buffalonians don't know is Buffalo had an original baseball franchise at the birth of the American League. So the American League started out in 1900 as a minor league. And in the fall of 1900, Ben Johnson, who is the president of the American League, decided to break away from organized baseball and form a second major league called the American League, which is today's American League. At the time, Buffalo was in the minor league and was going to be in the major leagues. They paid their franchise fee of $500 to join the the major league. However, Ban Johnson in January decided he needed a team in Boston to compete with the Boston Braves of the National League. When he found that he could build a stadium on Huntington Grounds in three months, he moved the Buffalo franchise to Boston. They became the Boston Americans, managed by a Buffalonian named Jimmy Collins, who was also the starting third baseman. In 1903, the Americans won the first World Series over the Pittsburgh Pirates. In 1907, they were renamed the Boston Red Sox. Mm. So the Red Sox were born in Buffalo. Mm. Um, and so Buffalo lost their chance at a Major League Baseball franchise. Later that year, of course, things come in threes. The owner of that franchise at 54 years old died of a heart attack, Mm. which people said he died of a broken heart because he lost his major league franchise to Boston. Mm. So that starts the curse. And the essence of the, the theory, if you will, is that no Buffalo franchise in the four major sports, baseball, football, hockey and basketball has ever won a universally recognized championship. So of course the bills won a championship in 64 and 65, but the NFL was considered the superior league at that time. And therefore Buffalo was not a universally recognized champion uh, either of those seasons. And in fact, most historians would say the Browns of 64 and the Packers of 65 were the superior team. And then, of course, Buffalo has a chance to win in 66 for Super Bowl. They win the AFL Eastern Division. They're hosting the Chiefs at home in the championship game. And they're trailing 14 to 7 near the end of the half. Jack Kemp's driving them for the tying touchdown. They're in the red zone. He spots Charlie Ferguson in the end zone. He throws the pass. Of course, it's a rainy day. Charlie Ferguson slips. And Johnny Robinson cuts in front of him, intercepts the ball, runs it back 70 yards. And they Kansas City kicks a field goal at the end of the half, goes in 
ahead 17-7 instead of 14-14. And of course, the Chiefs go on and win 31-7. And of course, you know, the Chiefs lose to the Packers, but... And to be interesting, your opinion here, but a lot of historians, me, me being one of them, we would have matched up really good against the Packers. We had not allowed a rushing touchdown in 17 consecutive games between 1964 and 65. And, you know, what was Green Bay's strength? Running. What was our strength? Stopping the run. Um, I think we're a better matchup than Kansas City was. Now, would we have been able to beat the Packers? Yeah. Who knows? Um, but my guess is we would have given him a really good game. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the 65 team would have had a better chance against the Packers than the 64 against the the Browns. I mean, the the Browns were a machine that year. And yeah. It's just, I just don't think anybody could have beaten them. Packers, I mean, obviously incredibly strong. They had a lot of weapons on there, whether it's the run, whether it's the pass, but I think that because of Buffalo's defense, it would have given them a fighting chance to be able to take them on and and hopefully win it. But to me, the AFL was in transition at that point. I mean, definitely when they started, they were not on the same level as the NFL. But I think as you're going through the 60s, getting to the late 60s, that's when they started proving that, yeah, they can they can take on the NFL and they can beat the NFL. So you're right in that tweener period in the 64-65 area. Yeah. And of course they lose to the Chiefs, so they never get the chance to which is part of the curse. <laughs> <laughs> now everyone's gonna have their own opinion on this, but I want to hear your opinion. What's the most painful disappointment in Buffalo sports history? Oh wow. The most painful well, I mean, it's gotta be wide right. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we were the best team in football that year. If we played the Giants ten times, we beat them eight. Mm-hmm. Um, we were the best team. Um, and so that's got to be the most painful. Um, it's right up there. I mean, the other two that that come to mind um, is, of course, no no goal. But that was only game six. So we would have had to go to Dallas to win game seven. Now, we had Dominic Hasek. So, you know, who knows if anybody scores against them. But, um, but that would have been a tall task. Um, the other football one would be home run throwback mm-hmm. um, because um, if we, you know, Tennessee goes all the way to the Super Bowl after they beat us, um, we would have played the Colts the next week. We beat them two weeks before 31 to six. It wasn't even close. Um, so, you know, I think we get to the Super Bowl and that was the, you know, that was the end of the Bruce Smith, Andre Reed, Thurman Thomas, all were let go at the end of that season. Um, we had a really, really good defense that year, uh, top defense in the NFL. Um, you know, and of course, that was the controversy when, you know, Ralph, Ralph Wilson pushed, you know, Phillips to replace Doug Flutie with Rob Johnson and, you know, the whole nine yards there. But um, that was painful. And it was personally painful because I was at the game, I was in Tennessee. <laughs> and I'm celebrating with 20 seconds left. We won the game. Oh my God. I can't believe we came to Tennessee and won. All you have to do is cover a kick. <laughs> right? How hard is that? Right. Well, we found out a couple of years ago too, that that's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. For sure. <clears throat> you just recently released another book. Um, I guess the hard launch is coming up this week, right? 
Yeah, it's uh, we have the the launch party is Thursday night at the Buffalo History Museum, mm-hmm. um, and that book is um, is really uh, another kind of historical book with a little different kind of flair to it. Um, it's called you know the Buffalo Bills: An Illustrated Timeline of a Storied Team, um, and what it is is it's a hundred and forty one individual stories. 300 to 500 word stories about the most important moments in Bill's history. Um, And it's not just game moments. It's, you know, the founding of the franchise, it's trades that were made. It's, you know, all kinds of different things, including of course, you know, many, many games. Every story is supported by at least one, if not multiple photos. Um, and so we're able to kind of like bring the stories to life through the, through the photographs. Um, and one of the great things is we did it through a company called Reedy Press. Um, and I, um, it's a book that I co-authored with, uh, Bud Bailey, Bud is a former sports reporter for the Buffalo news. He retired a couple of years ago. Um, so we did this collaboratively. Um, but Reedy Press gave us pretty much unfettered access to Getty images. Wow. So we could pick any of the images um, that Getty, you know, has um, pretty much. There was a few limitations, but, um, and we'll, but, you know, what we found out is Getty has like an incredible library from like the mid eighties forward, but they're a little bit more sporadic from 60 to 85. Well, we were able to dovetail some of my memorabilia from my collection into some of the earlier stories. I also have a relationship with the nephew of uh, the former Bills photographer, Robert Smith. Um, so we were able to get access to some of those photos from, you know, from him, um, which really enhanced the early years. Um, and so, you know, Reedy obviously was very, very thrilled with the book. We're very happy with the book. And um and ex- you know excited to really get it launched on uh, on Thursday. Well, best of luck with that book and I know you're also working on yet another book. This one on the <laughs> Providence Steamroller. So, why the Providence Steamroller? Oh, uh, yeah, well, that's a good question. One I do live in New England, so it was like, <laughs> okay, I should probably do something where I live, right? Or mm-hmm. it's close to where I live. But actually it came about, um, I mentioned that I had gone back to museum school. Um, well, as part of that, I had to do an internship. Um, and I chose to do it at the International Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island. And my internship turned into a, a three-month internship, turned into a year and a half job because they were completely renovating their museum, which was a fabulous experience. But um, but I, I developed a really good relationship with the executive director of the Tennis Hall of Fame, who's from Providence. Well, I, I decided to volunteer back there a couple of years ago during their Hall of Fame induction week. They always need extra help. So I said, hey, I'll, I'll help out. It's in the middle of the summer. So I got talking to Doug. Doug Stark is the, was the executive director at the time. And we started talking. He's there, hey, have you ever thought about doing a book on the steamroller? No, never crossed my mind other than they have a cool name. And he said, well, you should do one because you, you love football history. Um, he said, I think it's a really good story. I said, well, I'll do some research and start looking into it. 
Well, the more I looked into it, the more interesting it became. Um, I mean, just how they got their name, Steamroller, completely by accident. Um, they were uh, independent. So they started out in 1916 as an independent pro team. They didn't join the NFL until 1925. Um, and for many of the years that they played as an independent pro team, they were considered one of the best teams in the Northeast, um, even though there wasn't any, you know, like formal leagues or anything like that. They played strictly as an independent. But in the second or third game of their first year, they started out being called the, the Providence Professionals until I believe it's the second game. It's either the second or third game. The owner of the team, a guy named Charles Coppin, who was also the sports editor of the Providence Journal, was at the game, and he's standing in the hot dog line, and Providence is thrashing the team they're playing. And these two guys in front of him are talking, and the one guy says to the other, oh, Providence is steamrolling the opponent. And Coppin heard it and goes, oh, that's a great idea. That's what we're <laughs> going to name the team. <laughs> <laughs> and it was less than two weeks later, the Providence Journal calls them the Providence Steamroller, and it's gone from there. So, and and I mean, and not only were they called the Steamroller throughout, you know, their independent years, they were also that, of course, during their NFL years. Well, then the Steamroller name has been used for six other franchises in Providence history. Mostly semi-pro football teams. Uh, they had a team in the Atlantic Coast Football League in the early 60s. Um, they had an arena football team in 1988. Um, but they also used the steamroller name. They had a, a team in the Basketball Association of America, which was the forerunner to the NBA, called the Providence Steamrollers. Hmm. Um, and they played for three years, and they used that name. Um, so it has a cool history. But the football team itself, from 1925 through 1931, um, they have about eight or nine firsts in NFL history. Um, they played the first night game uh, in NFL history. They played the first game ever in Boston. Um, they're, the, they're the first and only NFL team to play four games in six days. Um, so they have some cool stuff. They played Red Grange three times and won every time. Um, so there's just some really, really cool history. And they're the last team that no longer exists to win an NFL championship. So they won an NFL championship in 1928. And they're the last team to win a championship that the franchise no longer exists. Hmm. Um, and of course, they went out in 31 because of the depression, hmm. um, basically killed their attendance. Yeah, I mean, that happened to a lot of teams. <laughs> yeah, like 37, I think, in the 20s went out of business. <laughs> I think was the count I got to. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, so anyway, it's a really cool story. Uh, McFarland is going to publish it. I signed a contract a couple of weeks ago. Uh, looking for it to come out either next fall or the spring of 1925. What I was trying to do is match up to their 100th anniversary of them being an NFL franchise, which is August 1st, 1925 is the 100th anniversary of the day they were awarded the franchise. Mm -hmm. So I definitely want the book out by then. I'd really like to get it out next fall. Um, and then the other thing I'm trying to do in lineup with the book is get a Rhode Island's historical marker um, at the 
Cyclodrome site, which was the field that they played on that, of course, is a shopping center now. Um, and I really want to get a historical marker placed there so that everybody remembers and knows that that's where the NFL, because they won the NFL championship on their home field. Um, so, um, so yeah, so no, it's a, it's been a great project. It's been a lot of fun. I've been researching for about 15 months and writing and stuff. And yeah, I mean, you, you know what it takes to, and, and actually I would tell you, um, I kind of designed the book after your Buffalo Bills book. Um, I kind of took like the ideas I have, a, you know, mini biographies at the end with all the players like you did in that book. I have statistics of all the seasons like you did. Um, so, yeah, so I kind of patterned it after your your Bill's book. Oh, I appreciate the compliments. Thank you. Yeah, no, yeah, that was that's a great book. <laughs> Thank you. So, I mean, what I like seeing is that we are getting several books coming out on the 1920s NFL teams. We've got your steamroller book that's going to be coming out in a couple of years. We've got the Rochester Jefferson's book that John Steffenhagen and Jeff Miller are working on. You've got Jeff Miller's All-Americans book that's out there. You've got mine that I'm working on on the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets. So it's nice to see people are telling that story of the, the 1920s NFL teams, even if they were only in the NFL for a little while, but just like with the steamroller, you know, they had success prior to joining the NFL. That was not their first time on the field. So being able to tell those stories, I think is important. Yeah, no. And, and it, it, it's been fun too digging in and really understanding the game then, because it was obviously a lot different than the game we see today. Um, and so it was really fun to learn, you know, it, it was a punting game <laughs> to mm -hmm. some degree, right. That was strategic. Um, and they were punting on second and third down and stuff like that, which is like hard to, you know, imagine today. But uh, so, yeah, so I've learned a lot about the early, you know, the early NFL and how games were played. And of course, you know, they had a huge rivalry with the Yellow Jackets. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, you know, similar path to the steamroller where they were an independent team for a while, joined the NFL, won a championship and then ended up folding in the 1930s. So, yeah. Yeah, very, very much so. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, All right. Final question. So let's talk a little bit about the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Who from the Buffalo Bills do you believe belongs in the Pro Football, Pro Football Hall of Fame that's not already there? So there's two. Um, and I actually feel strongly about both of them. Um, and the one that people will will resonate is Steve Tasker. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when, when coaches and general managers say special teams is a third of the game, <laughs> um, and the greatest special teams player to ever play is not in the hall of fame is a travesty in my view. Um, and yeah, sure. He played what, you know, 14 plays a game or 10 plays a game or whatever it was, but he made an impact mm -hmm. and, you know, um, Matthew Slater is kind of maybe today's close to equivalent, but I'm not as good as Tasker in my view. But um, so I think, I think Steve belongs in the other guy that I think really gets overlooked. And again, it'd be interesting in your point of view, since you understand football history so well uh, is Fred Smurless. And the reason I say Smurless, he really defined the modern day nose tackle position. 
Um, he was really the first superstar to play nose tackle. I mean, you could argue Curly Colt, but I don't know how much Curly was a true nose tackle. He played some nose tackle for sure. Um, but the 3-4 defense really became popular in the 70s. Um, and Smurlis, you know, he five-time All-Pro. Um, he was very good. He was on some really great defensive teams. I think he gets overlooked because he left the Bills – the year before they go to a Super Bowl. Um, but I, I think Smurlis is, like I said, I, he to me, he defined the modern-day position. Yeah, I mean, you got to look and see who played the true zero technique position. And, you know, you've got people like Smurlis. You would mention Culp, too. We have to see the percentage of plays where he was at the zero or whether he shifted over. But, yeah, it's um, that anchor of that Bermuda Triangle defense and you know it was he definitely had an impact on there and you can definitely argue a strong case for Smurlis. i mean what do you think about say like sestak yeah i mean you know yeah i mean sestak uh, arguably other than bruce smith is the greatest lineman in bill's history um i mean he was you know, Lou Saban once said he was better on one leg than most of the rest of the defensive linemen and the rest of the league were on two legs. <laughs> uh, you know, if he, obviously, if he doesn't get hurt, um, you know, he ends up or even if he played now with modern medicine, um, I'm sure he, you know, um, ha has a longer career than than he did. Um and you can't really hold that against him anymore with Terrell Davis going in, Max Beatty going in, Dick Stanfield going in. They all had short careers. Right, so right. You can't say that that's an argument against him anymore because they've already broken that precedent. Right, right. But, you know, as you know, there's a bias against AFL players. Um, you know, Billy Shaw is still the only player that played his full career in the AFL that's in the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, Shaw played against Sestak in practice every day. <laughs> and, yeah. and practices were physical back in those days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you were actually allowed to hit people back then. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I mean, we'll have to see if Otis Taylor ends up making it in this year or not. He's a finalist. So uh, there is that possibility we can get somebody else. But, uh, Greg, really appreciate your time. Always love talking football with you, and uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll do it again soon. All right. Hey, thanks a lot for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our interview with Greg Trancher, but we're not done. For our Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, we focus on the Providence Steamroller, one of the early teams in the NFL. The Providence Steamroller were founded in 1916 by members of the Providence Journal, a newspaper in Providence, Rhode Island. By 1924, the team was strong enough to take on NFL teams, going 3-2-1 and one against that competition. The two losses came against the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets, who were putting a pretty strong team together themselves. By 1926, the Yellow Jackets would win the NFL championship. Now back to the Steamroller. In 1925, the Steamroller joined the NFL. They had a winning season, going 6-5-1, and one, but were in the middle of the pack in the league standings. The following year, they slipped to 5-7-1 and one for the season, but were still in the middle of the pack. Things started to get better in 1927 as they were able to have their best season to date in the NFL, going 8-5-1. In 1928, they put it all together, going 8-1-2, winning the NFL championship. The team fell off after that championship season and eventually folded after the 1931 season. 
That's all that we have for this week. Stay tuned to our social media channels to stay up to date on our episodes. You can find the links on the main page of this podcast. If you like what you've heard, consider pressing that donate button in the podcast player. That money goes to continuing to provide quality content as well as to help retired players in need. Thank you for listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. To learn more about the FLA, go to our website at www.football-learning-academy.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.